Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm. Here are your hosts, experienced lawyers, writers, and entrepreneurs, Heidi Alexander and Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Legal Toolkit here on the Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Heidi Alexander. I'm also a law practice advisor with Massachusetts LOMAP. LOMAP provides free and confidential law practice management consulting services to Massachusetts attorneys. For more information on LOMAP's offerings, visit our website at masslomap.org. Here on the Legal Toolkit, my co-host Jared Correa and I provide you with a new tool each month to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. And before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so that you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Scorpion, who delivers award-winning law firm web design and online marketing programs to get you more cases. Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms, just like yours, attract new cases and grow their practice. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. In this episode, we'll be diving headfirst into smart legal contracts, blockchain, and Bitcoin. If you have no clue what I'm talking about, this is your cue to continue listening. I brought an expert to help us to understand these concepts. My guest, Josh Stark, no relation to the House of Starks, right? I'm hoping. (laughs) None that I'm aware of, Heidi. All right. For all our Game of Thrones listeners out there. So Josh is an attorney by training and currently head of operations and legal at Ledger Labs, which consults on blockchain technology. Josh has extensive experience in blockchain technology and how it applies to real-world cases, particularly in the legal and financial industries. In layman's terms, Josh is going to help us understand the technology and why we as attorneys should be interested in this phenomenon. Thanks for joining me today, Josh. Well, thanks for having me on, Heidi. I'm really happy to be here. Now, before we can talk about its application to the legal industry, let's first spend some time understanding blockchain technology. Let's start at the beginning. Where did the concept of blockchain technology come from? What was its original purpose? So the original purpose was the creation of Bitcoin, which is, as you probably know, a digital currency that's designed to operate globally uh, without any central party being responsible for it. Uh, And the technology was first invented and described by a person or persons uh, who called themselves Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, the still unknown creator of Bitcoin. Uh, So that said, the key components of blockchain technology, things like peer-to-peer networks, public and private keys, and various other cryptographic techniques, have been around for many years and sometimes decades. So the genius of blockchain technology was combining these existing components in a particular way to create something like Bitcoin. All right. And so as we go through this today, do not assume that we know anything. Okay. (laughs) That's that's how I'd like to do this. We are are at the most basic level. (laughs) You're going to help us out here. So in basic terms, and and again, I, I, I mean very basic, explain to us what blockchain is and what it accomplishes. Okay. So think of it as having two components. So first there's a ledger or a database if you want to think about it that way, but some set of information. 
In Bitcoin, this is of course a ledger, uh, you know, a, a long list of transactions or account balances. So that's the first component. The second component is a network of computers that together participate in overseeing that ledger. Uh, they store copies of it, they all take turns updating it, and they secure it against attack. Now, the incredible thing about blockchain technology is that it's able to keep that ledger or database logically consistent, even though there are thousands of copies all over the world on all of these different computers. Um, so if this is something very important, like a record of money, like Bitcoin, then there can only be one valid version of the record, otherwise the system wouldn't work. And this is a very difficult problem to solve. Um, if you've ever you know, been drafting a document that many different lawyers are trying to edit and make changes to at the same time, you have to do really complicated things like version control. And usually the way you solve that problem is by designating one person as being responsible for that document. And all changes to it have to go through them. And this is a similar solution to the way we solve this problem with money in the real world as well. We would say that there's you know, one financial institution or bank or central bank that's responsible for managing something like a ledger of transactions. So the magical thing about blockchain technology is that it's able to produce this one logically centralized record even though it is completely decentralized. So through the use of clever cryptography and other mathematical techniques and a set of well-calibrated incentives, the network can be in consensus about the state of the ledger, even though all the people that run the computers that maintain the ledger may not know each other and have no reason to trust one another. And so that's a real simplification, but I hope that conveys the basic achievement of the technology. Okay, I think that makes sense. I think we're getting there. You did mention Bitcoin, and I understand Bitcoin was the first application built on blockchain. So tell us now what Bitcoin is and how it's related to blockchain. Sure. So it's, it's really the whole genesis of the technology. One way, a really simple way of thinking about it would be, you know, if this was 1993, you may have heard of email. And if you ask me, well, what's email? I would tell you it's internet mail that is very cheap and very easy and totally global, and that it's an application of the internet, this broader technology that has other implications. So Bitcoin is the first and a very important application of blockchain technology. And it was designed to solve a very particular problem uh, that Satoshi wanted to solve, which is how do we create a digital cash-like currency that doesn't require any centralized party. So the Bitcoin blockchain is designed with this application very much in mind. The database that I spoke about is a ledger of Bitcoin transactions, and the Bitcoin blockchain protocol has a built-in restriction or a monetary policy on the total amount of Bitcoin that can exist, which is 21 million. And it serves as a, a template and inspiration for many other blockchain technologies that are being developed today. Importantly, the technology is being expanded for use beyond Bitcoin now, Many smart people around the world realize that if we can use this technology to create a digital currency, maybe we can also use it to store and transact other kinds of assets. Maybe we can use it to trade securities. Maybe we can use it to trade you know, Starbucks rewards points or record property title on it or many other things. So while Bitcoin was the beginning of the technology and remains a very important thing in this industry, the technology is now being expanded for many other purposes. Now, you mentioned that part of this relies on a decentralized platform. 
So without a centralized platform, security issues come to mind. And so can you explain how blockchain technology ensures the security of, say, a Bitcoin transaction? Of course. And this is, this is something that people are always concerned about. Naturally, the idea of internet money uh, doesn't sound very secure, right? We have all these hacks that happen all the time uh, that people are very reasonably wary about. So there's two things that you might mean by security. One is, how do I make sure that no one else can spend my Bitcoin? So in order to control Bitcoin that you own, the system uses something called public and private key cryptography. And essentially, or simply, the way this works is your private key lets you prove to the blockchain network that you own an amount of Bitcoin, but you never actually have to show anyone else the private key itself. And this is very different and more secure than, say, the way we engage in credit card transactions where you enter all of your secret information necessary to make a purchase and then you send it over the internet and you have to trust whoever has it in the end, whether that's you know, Target or Sony, uh, and you have to trust that they won't lose it, which sometimes they will, as we know. So someone could still get your private key off your computer, but that's no different than a password or a credit card number already. So the reason it's more secure than a credit card is that it uses this system, which is just by its very nature more secure. Importantly, this isn't a unique feature of blockchain technology. Uh, the basic techniques for public-private key cryptography have been around since the 1980s. We could have built our online payment and authorization systems using this tech, uh, but we didn't, uh, instead opting for passwords and things like just editing your credit card information. These are a lot more user-friendly, of course. We're all kind of familiar now with how passwords work, uh, but it is less secure. So that's one way. Another way you might think of security is, well, if I send or receive Bitcoin, how do I know that money will still be available in the right place in a year or five years or 50 years? How do I know that someone can't come and edit the ledger to change who owns that money? This answer is a little more complicated because it turns on the economic security model of Bitcoin. And this is, again, simplifying, of course, but the primary way that the Bitcoin blockchain protects itself against an attack, an attack like someone trying to edit the record to take away your money, is by making it very, very expensive to do that. So the system is built such that it is expensive to participate in the network. Uh, I mentioned earlier there are all these computers around the world that contribute to it and take turns updating the ledger. It's quite expensive to do that. It requires computing power and electricity. And the reason this is so is that it would be very expensive for someone to gain a majority of the total power of the network, which might enable them to edit past transactions or to censor future transactions. So trusting the security of the network in this sense is trusting this system of economic incentives that makes it very, very, very expensive uh, on the scale of billions and billions of dollars to attack the network itself. Okay, I got it. And so what you're talking about here, because I know maybe one or two things about this, you're talking about the Bitcoin miners, is that? Um, yeah, exactly. So explain that to us. Right. So there are all these computers around the world, and yes, they are called miners. I didn't use that term initially because it can be kind of misleading, but what these computers are doing are contributing to the network by receiving transactions and trying to update the ledger, and they take turns doing so. And in order to win the right to update the ledger, they're basically trying to solve a difficult math problem 
over and over and over again, which requires electricity and computational resources. So in order to do that, in order to update the record, they have to expend these real resources, meaning that if someone wanted to gain control of the network and you know, be able to reliably be the party that updates the network, they'd have to spend a lot of money to achieve that position. It gets a lot more complicated from there, but that's the simple version of how those incentives work. Okay, so let's apply this to the real world and try to put this in context. Can you give us some simple examples of how blockchain technology works in the real world? Yeah, of course. So I guess the most incredible thing about Bitcoin is that you can send money anywhere in the world for very little cost without going through a financial institution. You can send money directly to another person. And importantly, it costs the same to me whether I am paying and sending $4 to Starbucks for a coffee or if I'm sending $10 million halfway around the world. Either way, it's going to cost just a few pennies to make that transaction, and it will take just as long to transfer and settle. And this isn't always, you know, the power of this isn't always immediate to people that live in Canada or the U.S., uh, where we have, you know, usually quite good financial institutions and usually quite stable banks. But in places around the world, it solves a very practical problem. In Argentina, for example, where the government sets an artificial exchange rate and where many people are trying to protect their money against inflation and get their money out of the country in some cases, there's now a very large industry of money changers that are using Bitcoin to help people store their money and transfer it out of the country. Um, they used to use American dollars, of course, but now increasingly they use Bitcoin for the same thing because it offers certain advantages. All right. That is very interesting. We've tackled the basics here, and unfortunately, we need to take a quick break. But if you stay tuned after the break, Josh will help us understand the legal applications of blockchain technology. Not getting enough cases from the Internet or the kind of cases you want? Scorpion can help. Over the last 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practice. During this time, Scorpion has won over 100 awards for their law firm web design and online marketing success. Join the thousands of law firms which partner with Scorpion and start getting more cases today. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. Welcome back to the second half of our show with Josh Stark, head of operations and legal at Ledger Labs. Now that we've worked our way through Bitcoin and blockchain, I'd like to move on to specific applications in the legal industry. First, let's talk about the idea of smart or self-executing contracts. Can you explain and give us an example? Sure. So the basic idea of a smart contract has been around since the 1990s. And the basic definition would be you know, to articulate and verify and execute the terms of an agreement in code rather than in natural language. And the classic example offered by the person that coined the term, Nick Szabo, is to think about it like a vending machine. So a vending machine is a piece of technology that enforces a really simple set of terms. If you put in $2, it will give you a chocolate bar. 
Uh, it can operate without any human executing those terms because it controls the chocolate bar itself and it can receive and secure the money that you give it. Um, so this is a contract in some sense that can execute itself. So that's like the, the simplest version, but if we extend the concept, maybe there are many types of contracts, more practical ones that matter to lawyers, that could be articulated and executed using code. So the idea predates blockchain technology, but the reason we speak about it in relation to blockchain is that it might be a very good platform to make smart contracts real. So because we can store the contract itself on a blockchain as code, it gives us a high degree of assurance that the contract will always be there, just like we can know that our Bitcoin will always be there. Once we put a contract up there, it can be trusted to always be the same. And we can actually use a blockchain itself to execute the terms. A blockchain, in simplest terms, can also behave like a computer. It can carry out logical operations that we give it. So the blockchain itself can execute the terms of the agreement and do things like send money to certain accounts or change the ownership of some asset that exists on the blockchain itself. Now, I know you do a lot of writing and, and thinking in terms of how you know, blockchain technology and smart contracts uh, are used in the financial industry and the legal industry. And so I'm thinking about how smart contracts can change the practice of law. And I'm wondering what you think about that and what sort of impact blockchain technology will have on individual attorneys and, and maybe the judicial system at large. I'm, I'm thinking somewhat about concerns from lawyers that you know, maybe it would put us out of business um, or even obviate the need for judicial resolution in, in some matters uh, when you're dealing with contracts. What do you think about all of that? Well, I think the concerns that we won't need lawyers anymore are not realistic. I, I think, I mean, really, this is as much an opportunity for the legal industry as it is a risk. But certainly that does go to something which is very important, which is, I mean, I think that this is very different from what we usually think of as legal technology. You know, a lot of the things we, we talk about in legal tech are, you know, applications that make lawyers' job easier and make them more efficient, and hopefully those savings are then passed on to clients. Blockchain technology and smart contracts in blockchain technology are more like something that the client will use to solve a problem that is currently solved, in some cases, by lawyers. And so that's kind of where the, the concern and the risk comes from. It's much more of this could be a fundamental shift in how a lot of commercial interactions happen uh, with attendant consequences for the lawyers that, whose jobs it is to facilitate those transactions. So in the medium term, I would say the biggest impact would be on you know, process-intensive work in commercial and especially financial law. I think I mentioned earlier you know, a lot of work is being done right now in uh, extend this technology to financial assets. So there's a lot of work being done, especially in New York, on you know, can we use blockchain technology to exchange assets like securities and shares and derivatives? Uh, and can we use it for very process-intensive and laborious types of transactions between financial institutions? And if that can be done, then the ability to execute terms automatically on this technology might make it easier for the clients of lawyers to do things with fewer billable hours and to take advantage of just some of the basic features of software, which is that it happens automatically, it's machine-readable, um, and it's often very efficient. So, But that said, the world is a lot more complicated than 
people give it credit for. And in order to make a smart contract that will never need a lawyer to be involved, would require us to program that smart contract to take into account every possible outcome. But in the real world, things go wrong, and that's when litigators and the courts have to get involved. So, you know, there's always going to be tricky issues, especially when it comes to human performance, you know, whether a party was negligent or not, uh, what rights were owed to the shareholders. You know, these are all very difficult questions, even for people to answer, and I don't think it's realistic that we can solve those through the use of smart contract code anytime soon. Um, so I think that the impact will be felt in the industry, but certainly there's a lot of things the legal system does that is very complicated and not something that we can just reduce to code. And do you think that blockchain might also be able to solve some access to justice problems? Um, perhaps in a way. I mean, usually when we talk about access to justice, we're talking about you know, people that cannot afford a lawyer and suffer great consequences because of that. And I think really the use of blockchain technology and smart contracts as we see it in the medium to long term is really about how we engage in commerce and how commercial interactions happen and how we represent and transact many different types of value. But if you're a person under the poverty line who needs to sue to get your benefits or who loses their house and needs a lawyer to represent them, that doesn't help these people. That question is a lot more difficult. So maybe this might make it easier for you know small businesses, for example, to engage in complex commercial and financial transactions without requiring high lawyer fees. That's a certain type of access to justice, certainly, but the types of uh, issues in access to justice that are of most concern, I don't think that blockchain offers a great deal of solutions there and shouldn't be seen as a panacea, obviously, for all the legal systems problems. Mm-hmm. So how far off do you think we are from the adoption of blockchain technology in the legal industry? I mean, clearly there are a number of challenges. What do you think in terms of the time frame and, and how can attorneys prepare for this? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's very much the million dollar question, right? When will this happen? I would say it's very early days. You know, the we've gotten to the point where there's a lot of work being done in expanding the capability of technology to allow other types of assets to be traded over these systems and stored in these systems. And as that happens, there will just be more assets in the world that use blockchain technology. And, you know, a lawyer's clients will care about those assets and lawyers will have to understand them and be able to work with them and understand what new capabilities they offer to their clients and to themselves as well. So I think we're still, you know, years away. The famous quote, I believe, from Bill Gates is, we always overestimate what can be accomplished in two years, but underestimate what can happen in 10. Uh, so I would say, you know, a lot is going to happen in the next 10 years, but the next two will seem very slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to prepare, I would say just keep reading about it, stay on top of new developments, and try to understand it and call people like myself and my colleagues uh, to give you an expert perspective. And it also, I mean, one of the great things about this technology is it's very interdisciplinary. It is certainly a computer science issue that technical people are required to understand. And I rely on my colleagues a lot to inform my own technical understanding of the technology. But it's also something where lawyers can really have an impact and make a difference by, you know, providing centuries of expertise in how to structure commercial relationships and what it means to have a contract and how to deal with problems when they arise. And it really requires people on both sides of that divide to step outside their comfort zone and really dig into either the technology or, you know, the history of our legal systems. 
And before we go, Josh, I have one more question. Do you have any go-to resources to learn more about Bitcoin and blockchain technology? Yeah, I mean, there is lots of good stuff out there. There's also yeah. lots of bad stuff out there, right, right. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I don't have like a go-to. Yeah, I would say read widely. I mean, for a good yeah. technical resource, there's a book called Mastering Bitcoin um, uh-huh. by a uh, name Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, uh-huh. It's very well regarded in a very solid textbook if uh-huh. someone really wants to understand it down to a granular level. But otherwise, I would say, I don't know, I, I guess I would recommend read whatever I write uh, yeah. <laughs> implicitly. <laughs> Yeah, um, sure. There's not kind of like a, a default resource, I would say. Okay. All right. Well, I thank you, Josh, for sharing all of your expertise. I am sad to report that we've reached the end of another episode of the Legal Toolkit. But Josh, if our listeners would like to learn more about you or ask you some questions about this, how would they go about doing so? Uh, you can email me at josh at ledgerlabs.com. So definitely get in touch. Uh, we're always eager to speak to people with an interest and a passion for this technology. Well, thank you again, Josh, and thank you listeners for joining me for another episode of the Legal Toolkit. And remember, you can check out all of our shows anytime you'd like at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Heidi and Jared for their next podcast, covering the current business trends for law firms. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.